So this morning, we are going to be in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And this passage of Scripture contains, uh, in the middle of it, my life verse. And I'll tell you what that is in a second. Um, but this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. This is a verse that um, my, the seminary that I went to has is its kind of theme verse. Um, and quite frankly, the reason why I picked it is because I just love this passage of Scripture, and it's one that, that I live my life by. Um, and before we begin this morning, you see the title of the message is, is Who's Your Head? Um, and you may already know this, um, but uh, you can't survive without your head. Now, I say that statement, and there's a caveat. When I was doing the research for this, I, I discovered a, a news article, I think it was on a farming website, if I'm remembering right, that said that a chicken of all creatures in the world, a chicken survived for two years without a head because of the way its head was cut off and the way it was severed at the spine. It managed to keep on trucking for two years. That's a long time to live without your head. Uh, I don't know of any human being that has ever lived without their head more than about a nanosecond um, because of what the head is. It's obviously not just your brain. It's your skull, and it has all five senses in it. And you cannot survive without it. Um, and this morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. That's why it's called Colossians, as it was the church in Colossae. And he wrote it to combat some heresy. And for those of you who are not familiar with what heresy is, heresy is when somebody teaches something that is completely against what Scripture is. Um, there are many uh, in the church today um, that, that are way off, not even Pentecostal churches, but like way left of even them. We would call them proclaim it and name it preachers. They're the ones that you say, hey, asking you shall receive it and your joy will be made complete. Well, I should be able to ask for a million dollars and get it because my joy is going to be completed. Well, that's, that's heresy because that's not what the Bible accurately teaches. And in this case... Paul is addressing something where the church at Colossae is doing with the heresy that Jesus was really just a man. He had become a deity, he had become God, but when he was here on this planet, he was just another human being like you and I were. And he became God, but he started out as a man. And Paul writes this to directly combat it. Now, I don't know about your Bible, your Bibles, but in my Bible, I'm, I'm in the Christian Standard Bible this morning, but it kind of looks like uh, a psalm. If you, if you were to go over and look at some of your psalms and the way that the psalms are written, mine looks like a psalm. It goes from the scripture to the actual psalms, and that's because Paul wrote this as a hymn to this church. Uh, and I don't, I don't know about you guys and obviously how your, your thoughts work, but um, it's easier for me to memorize something if I can sing it than if I just have words. I can memorize a song in about 10 seconds if I hear it, but you give me, you know, lines to Macbeth, and it's going to take me a while. And I think that's the reason why Paul wrote this as a hymn, was for the church to remember it, to not forget it. Uh, because what he's dealing with this morning is vitally important to our church. Because as Christians, we have to decide who's your head, or who is your head. We have to decide who that person is going to be that's in charge of our life. Because every single person in this room has a leader and has an authority in your life. Not just in the workplace. Everybody has a boss. Even I have a boss. It's Jesus Christ. But if your head's not attached right, so to speak, you know, we say as Southerners, you get your head right. If your head's not right, your life isn't going to be right. 
And we're going to see that this morning. We're going to see four aspects of Jesus that are going to tell us that not only is Jesus God, Jesus alone is worthy of being our head, and he's the one alone that is worthy of being the leader of our life. And I'm going to tell you on the, on the front end right now, I may step on your toes this morning. I, one of our church members, when we finished praying in here this morning as part of a prayer walk, he said, Preacher, are you going to step on my toes? And I said, Yeah, you may need steel toe boots. Um, so go ahead, curl those, curl those up a little bit, suck them on into your shoes, um, because by the time we get done here, you may not like me. You may love me, but you may not like me. So, but let's, before we go any further, let's, let's ask God to bless this time. Let, let's just ask him to help me focus and let's focus. Lord Jesus, I just ask that you use me. Lord, I ask that you speak through me. God, that my vocal cords would belong to you, that the very breath that's in my lungs would be of you. Lord, use my being for your glory this morning. Help me preach boldly, but in love. In your name I pray. Amen. So the first aspect of Jesus that I want us to see is found in, in verse 15a. Not 15, but 15a. And it is simply this. He makes the invisible visible. Jesus makes the, the invisible visible. Verse 15a says this. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, let's stop right there. We, we live in a world full of images. If you go on to Facebook, if you are on any kind of social media, if you are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, even if you get out your phone, there are thousands, if you're on Facebook, literally millions of images that inundate us. It seems like that's all people run off of is images. But an image isn't the real thing. An image represents something but an image doesn't think, it doesn't feel, it doesn't have emotions, you know, it doesn't have a real body, it's just there. If it's on your phone, it's, you know, it's your phone. I remember back when I was a teenager, you, anybody here remember the old 35 millimeter Nikon click cameras where you go click and they'd have that wheel where you go and they get done and they go click again to let you know, all right, I'm at the next, anybody remember that? And it wouldn't, it wouldn't, you know, zoom in and zoom out. It was autofocus. And so if you weren't close enough to that person, they'd look really blurry. It would look really bad. Well, that picture was not that person. It represented that person, but it wasn't that person. Well, here, Paul's saying something that is gigantic, if we wrap our minds around it. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, when I think of that, I think of, and, and, and pardon me for, for making this illustration, but this is just the way my mind works, I think of vampires, okay? Um, if you know anything about vampires, and I don't believe in vampires, and pardon me if, if you don't think I should be talking about this from the pulpit, but supposedly vampires, if they stand in front of a mirror, they can't see themselves. They don't have a reflection. Well, Jesus is the reverse of that. If God the Father were to stand in front of a mirror, he would see Jesus. Jesus would reflect back at him. He would see that. And so Jesus for God doesn't just represent God. He re-presents God to people. When he came down to earth, he showed people, hey, I'm God and I'm going to re-present him to you in a way where you can understand God. I don't just represent him. I want you to get God this morning. I want you to get God here in 33 AD when, that, when he was down here. 
I don't know if you've ever had a discussion with somebody um, and you're witnessing to them and they say, well, I can't believe in a God that I can't see. I got to see it to believe it. My first question to them is, okay, do you believe in air? Oxygen, you know, the stuff that goes in your lungs. Do you believe in that? Well, yeah, I believe in that. Okay, can you see air? Well, no. Okay, if you can't see air and you believe in it, why do you believe in it? Because I can see what it does. I see the effects of it. I can't see it, but I see it when it blows through a tree. I see it when it blows dust on my eyeballs while I'm mowing the lawn. Okay. So if you can't see God, you can't see air, but you can see the effects of air around you, you can see God by how I live my life. Because if I'm following Jesus Christ, and I'm reflecting God's glory to creation then you should be able to look at me and see, see God, see Jesus Christ. So you may not be able to see the invisible God, but if I am a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be able to see him and how I live my life. So he's not invisible to you anymore. He is very visible. You just got to know where to look for him. The second aspect that we see of Jesus is he is sovereign over everything. And I reread this passage. I, I've read this passage probably thousands of times. But I reread this passage this week and I, I cried. I wept at my desk when I reread this passage because my brain, for whatever reason, realized just how amazing Jesus is. Verse 15b through 17 it says, He is the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven, up, earth, the invisible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So he created it, and it, it was created for Jesus Christ. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Now, that is a whole lot to read, so let me break it down for you real quick, okay? Verse 15b, it says, the firstborn over all creation. That does not literally mean he was the firstborn, like physically born, of all creation. In the Bible, there are multiple ways to read the, the word firstborn. And typically, in Jesus' time, the firstborn was the person who, who, if daddy died, he was the ruler over that house. And even when daddy was away... He was still the ruler over that house. So here it's saying Jesus is the ruler over all creation. And he got that way by being raised from the dead. He didn't start out that way initially when he was born. But when he was raised from the dead, he became the firstborn over all creation. And then it says something that is absolutely mind-blowing. And I want to really quickly, I want to pause and say, this says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This morning in Sunday school, um, we talked about how Moses was buried by God. Sidebar, plug for Sunday school. If you're not involved in a Sunday school class, get involved in a Sunday school class because that's where community and fellowship happens. Okay, end of that sidebar. Okay. And we were talking about how Moses was buried by God. Well, Moses wasn't physically buried by God the Father because God the Father is spirit. Moses was buried by Jesus Christ. 
And there are many times in the Old Testament where I believe Jesus Christ is physically down here on this planet and he does something. Well, here it says, this is talking about Jesus, everything was created by him. And then down in verse 17, it says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So let me, let me explain it like this, okay? Let's think about the six days of creation. God was the architect. He was the one that, that took the blueprints out and said, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to speak a ball into existence and that ball is going to have water over it. And then land's going to appear and this is going to happen and this, can, this is going to happen. All right, Jesus, go. And Jesus said, let there be light. And out of Jesus' mouth, light streamed and there was light. Let water appear. And where water had not been previously, water now was. Let the beasts appear, and poof, they're beasts. In fact, the Bible even says that the beasts came out of the ground. I would have loved to have been there watching a rhinoceros come out of the dirt. That would have been really cool. Jesus is speaking this into existence. And then it says in Genesis 1, it says that the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. So I kind of get it like this. God's the architect. Jesus is the builder. He's the contractor. The Holy Spirit is the foreman. He's kind of the one going, everything looks good here. Keep on doing it, Jesus. Yep, that, that rhino turned out good. I don't know why I'm picking on rhinos this morning, but I am. He made sure everything was good. But then it says that everything was created for Jesus. The reason why everything exists was for Jesus. Now, let me fast forward this 2,000 years to when Jesus is alive. Because this is the part that made my brain go, whoa. This says he created everything, and by him everything holds together. That means he created Mary, his mom. He created Joseph, his dad. He created the Pharisees, the ones that hated him. He created those guys. And the Sadducees and Judas. He created his 12 disciples. He created the cross that he was crucified on. He created the metal that turned into the nails that held him to that cross. He created the tomb where his body went into. He created the stone that was in front of the tomb. And here was the thought that I was like, wow. And while he was dying on the cross, paying for the sins of everybody, of all of eternity, you know what else he was doing? Verse 17b, and by him all things hold together. While Jesus Christ was dying on the cross for your sins, he was holding eternity together. The universe as we know it, Jesus was holding together. That blows my mind. I, I, I cannot understand and fathom a God that is so great that he would pay for my sins. Yet he is so sovereign that he can hold himself attached to a cross and make sure that all the molecules of that cross are staying together so he can die for my sins and he can do all that and he can be dead and still hold everything together. That is a really big God, guys. Amen? That is a sovereign God. That means that Jesus is literally holding our sanctuary together. My hair follicles, he's making sure they stay on my head. The oxygen going into my lungs right now so I don't pass out while I'm doing this. He's making sure that happens. And it's all for his glory.
which will really mess with you if you think about it. Because if Jesus is sovereign over everything, that means he's sovereign over the suffering that happens on this planet. It means he knows what's going on. He knows the hurts that are happening in that person's life. And it's still according to his will. That means he created Satan and everything that Satan does is with God's permission. Just like in Job. You see now why my head hurts sometimes. Because Jesus is amazing. He's so much bigger than a man that just came down to this planet thousands of years ago. He's God. And he's worthy of our praise. And the third aspect that we see of Jesus is not only does he make the invisible visible, and not only is he sovereign over everything, but he comes first in everything. He's number one. Verse 19, verse 18, I'm sorry, says this, He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that word firstborn again. He's the ruler of the dead because he permanently conquered death. He is the ruler over the dead. So that he might, might come to have first place in everything. The reason why he has first place in everything is because he's the ruler over the dead. Because he's the body, he's the head of the church. He's first place in everything because, quite frankly, he's God and he's earned it. In the sense that he was raised from the dead. He did the one thing nobody else could do. Now, at the meet and greet a few weeks ago, you guys were asking me questions. And I told you that one of the things that would keep this church alive was very simply if Jesus Christ was the head of this church. And I got that from this passage. Because notice it does not say Jesus is the heart of the body, the church. Now why do you think that that is? I think that that's... I think the reason behind that is because our heart can change allegiance. We can have heart transplants. I've been a Christian since 2004, but there have been many times where my heart went astray. Many times where if I wasn't in God's word, my heart was thinking over here even though I should have been over here. That's why he's not the heart of the church. He's the head of the church. But see, spiritually speaking, that can happen to us too. Let me give you some examples. So as, as churches, our hearts, our heads can get astray when we focus on things like this. What particular style of music is acceptable in a worship service? How somebody should dress. Making sure the right people are on a committee. Making sure that certain men should serve as deacons. But all the while ignoring the fact that Jesus doesn't care about what style of music you've got in your church as long as you are praising his name. And he does not care about how you dress just as long as you're dressing modestly and you come with a heart full of worship. He doesn't care about who's serving on what committee. He just wants to make sure that that committee loves Jesus and is serving his body. And if they're not doing it, then that committee needs to get right with the Lord. And he doesn't care about what men are deacons as long as those deacons are God-fearing, Jesus-loving, family-oriented men who have a good reputation and who will serve his church. That's what he wants in his church. 
So many churches nowadays do not have that. Well, our carpet's red when it should be green. Jesus does not care about what the color of the carpet is or how comfortable your pew is. In fact, he'd probably rather you be a little bit uncomfortable to stay awake in service on a Sunday morning. And the reason why the church gets this way is because people get that way. One of the other things I said, the meet and greet, was the church will have Jesus Christ as its head when the families have Jesus Christ as its head. Because the body of Christ is made up of human beings and families. And then I'm going to speak to you for a second. Men, if your relationship with God is not active, if you are not actively studying the Bible, if you are not actively singing to Him, even if it's a joyful noise, that is okay. God still wants a joyful noise. If you are not actively leading your families in discipleship to Jesus, you have failed. And I count myself among that because I don't do that. We have two rules in my house. And they both come out of Mark chapter 12, verses 29 through 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because I have found in my home that if I do those two things, it pretty much covers life. When the boys get into an argument, boys, is what you just said, would you want him to say that to you? Well, no. So why did you say it to him? Why did you just bounce him off of the trampoline from six feet? Yes, that actually happened. Thankfully, they were both on the trampoline when it happened. If you're a family or a friend of mine, you'll be used as sermon illustrations, by the way. <laughs> And then love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you go back to that passage of Scripture, your neighbor is your enemy. That comes back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus is asking these guys, who was who this guy's neighbor? After seeing this dead guy get passed up by a Levi, and by a priest, and then by a Samaritan. The Samaritans were hated. But the Samaritan, the guy that was hated, was the one who picked up the neighbor, put him on his donkey, and took care of him. And Jesus says, who is the neighbor? And the scribe says, well, it, the, the guy who took care of him. And Jesus says, go do likewise. In my house, those are the two rules. Now, why do I say that? I say that because of this. If I'm living as best I know how under the grace of God as a Christian, and I am leading my family, when my family comes to church, Lord willing, we will participate in the fellowship of the church of God, of the body of Christ. And if every family in the church does that, then you have a healthy, functioning body of Christ. That's why not everybody can be an eyelash or a head or an arm, right? Now, I'm going to kind of throw something at you, right? In the human body, there's this thing called the gallbladder. Who wants to be the gallbladder? I mean, that's the thing that makes you taste bad stuff when you upchuck. But there's a reason why the gallbladder exists. Now, I don't necessarily know that you want to go bragging about the fact that you're the gallbladder of Jesus Christ, but y'all understand what I'm saying. It is a functioning body. And when you have a functioning body of Christ, the things that I mentioned earlier, arguing over the style of music and who's going to be on what committee and what deacon should or shouldn't be serving right now, all that won't matter because it's Jesus, 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 and he'll take care of everything. That's how it works. That's why it says, he is the head of the body of Christ. Well, as I mentioned earlier, if you chop off the head, the body dies. A church that doesn't have Jesus Christ as its head, a church that has human beings as its head, won't make it. 
It does. But how did we get here? I mean, how, how did we get to the point where Jesus earned the, the right, became first place in everything? How did we get there? Well, that gets us to the fourth aspect of it. And simply, that's this. Jesus is God, and God made it right. Verses 19 and 20 says this, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, we're going to hang out on that word in a minute, through his blood shed on the cross. Now, at first glance, verse 19 looks kind of weird because we look at verse 19 and go, wait a minute, that says, like, that could read like Jesus hasn't always been God because it says, for God, at least in the translation I have, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell on him like God was going, yes, Jesus is fully God. Woo! But that's not at all what Paul is saying. Now, if you'll remember... Back at the beginning, I said that the whole reason why Paul wrote this letter was to combat a heresy that Jesus wasn't fully God. Well, this is basically taking that heresy, walking up to it, and slapping it in the face. Because what Jesus is saying is basically this. Before everything was created, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had a, had a conference when there was nothing else but them. And God said, Jesus... You're going to create everything. You're going to hold it all together. And you're going to die for them. And you're going to be 100% God still. But you're going to be man. And that's the only way it can happen. And it was as if God, the Godhead, the Trinity, said, yes, that's a good plan. Let's do that. And that's why it's a slap in the face because if you'll remember the heresy was, well, Jesus was a man who became God. And Paul here is saying, no, 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 no. You got it wrong. Jesus was a God, the God, who became man. And that gets you into verse 20. It says reconcile. Now, there are two ways to say reconcile. I'm going to wrap it up in just a minute. There's the banking term reconcile, and then there's reconcile is in to make right, okay? The banking term reconcile means you make sure that your pluses and your minuses are equal, right? Um, anybody who's ever balanced a checkbook at the end of the month, something that I hate doing, you have your checkbook, and then you have what the bank says, and the bank 99.9% of the time is always right. I've never seen where the bank has been wrong. I wish. That'd be awesome. I'd like another zero in my bank account sometimes. Anyway. And you take what you've got and take what the bank has and you make sure everything lines out and that's reconciliation. That's not what this means here. This reconcile means God saw a problem. And here's the problem. I'm going to read it out of Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 10. God proves his own love. He demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we're still sinners. We have no hope. Christ died for us. For if while we were his enemies, I don't have many enemies, but I know what an enemy is, and this says that I'm his enemy and Christ Jesus died for me. It says we were reconciled, we were made right, and it says through the death of his son, then how much more, having been made right, have we been reconciled, 
Will we be saved by his life? Okay, so we're made right by Jesus Christ. But how did that happen? In the most painful way possible. Look down at verse 20, the second half of it. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus came down from heaven knowing exactly what he was getting into. Make no mistake about it. When Jesus was sent by God the Father to come down to heaven, he knew what he was getting into because he knew what he was getting into before he created anything. This was the plan all along, which will absolutely rock your world when you think about the fact that God knew all along he was going to have to send his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross even before he created Adam and Eve. That'll mess with you. And then it says he made peace by Jesus' blood. The payment for our sins, the payment for being made right was blood. It was as if Jesus took a peace treaty that he wrote out and said, Ah, God, do hereby declare peace between man and God for all of eternity, signed Jesus Christ. And handed God the treaty and said, There you go. It is finished. I'm coming to you. And he died and went up to heaven. That's how Jesus made it right. He bled for us. He died of a broken heart so that we might be able to have a relationship with him. One of my favorite hymns is a, a hymn called Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Woo! Every time we sing that, tears just, woo! Mm. And a lot of people know the second, or the, the first verse. What can wash away my sin and nothing but the blood of Jesus? We all know that one, right? Especially if you're a, a, a Baptist church that sings the first and the third verses where you skip the second one. This is the second verse, and this is the one that just says, For my pardon this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing this I plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we're going to sing the chorus just for fun. Oh, precious. Y'all sing with me. Oh, precious is the flow that made me white as snow. Oh, no found I know nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. There is only one person on this planet that can be pardoned and that is if you're an enemy. If you have committed a wrong, if you are in prison, the governor has to pardon you. Well, in this case, God said, I pardon you, but not because of anything you've done. I pardon you because of what my son did. Because he's God. Because he is the image of the invisible God. Because he holds everything together. He comes first in everything. And he's God and he made everything right. And because of all of that, Jesus Christ is the head of this world. And he's my head, guys. Colossians 1.18b says, 
so that he might, have, might come to have first place in everything. That is my life verse. Because it is my great desire for Jesus Christ to be first place in everything. But he only gets that way if I have accepted his death on the cross as payment for my sin. See, it's a fact in eternity, in the history books, that Jesus Christ died on the cross. It's a fact that he rose from the dead. Even his enemies have admitted it. Atheists and agnostics can argue with you all day long, but that doesn't mean they're right. Jesus Christ did as he said he was going to do. Now, we have a choice. We can either live according to God's word and trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and was buried and raised from the dead three days later, or we can live for our own selves and think, think and I say the word think loosely, that we're the boss of our lives, when the reality of it is God is still sovereign over our lives, even if we don't have him as our, as our boss. Or we can confess him as Lord, as the Bible says, call upon him to save us, and then he does two amazing things. He changes our heart of stone to a heart of flesh, according to Ezekiel. And then he changes our head. He transforms our mind, according to his word. But the only way that that happens is if you make the decision to admit, I'm wrong. God is right. And I need Jesus. I need to be saved from my sins. Now, there may be those of you in this room who have done that before, but you haven't been living for the Lord. Your head isn't right. Your heart may be in the right place, but you're not really living for Jesus if you're real with yourself. In a minute, we're going to have an invitation time. And whether you want to sit there in your pew and just pray, or you want to come down here to the altar and pray, or pray with me, I love praying with my people. Or maybe you've been saved, but you've never been baptized. You've never been obedient to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was baptized. And you've been saved, but for whatever reason, it was just, no. And you realize now, you know what? If Jesus is going to be the head of my life, I need to be obedient to him, and I need to get baptized. I would love to do that to you. It's right there behind me. Choir might get a little wet, but I think they'd be okay with that. And if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes for me. And if there is anybody in this room today that has never given their life to Christ, and you don't really know how to pray, you've not really ever prayed in your life, but you want to become a Christian, you want to give your life to Christ, allow me to lead you in a guided prayer. It just goes like this. Lord Jesus... I know you died on the cross for my sins and you were raised from the dead and I call upon you to save me and be the head of my life. Lord, as we enter into this time of invitation, I ask that you would help us to be real with you now. Lord, it doesn't make a difference who else is in the room. This is an audience of one that we do business with now, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have given us and for your word. And I ask now that you would help us to do business with you. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.